This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. And welcome to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Matt Caraccio, and today we are going to dive into something really special in the sport movement world, in the world of football. I am so pleased to be joined today by Mr. Tyler Yearby and Sean Mishka. They are co-directors of education at Emergence, and they have recently co-authored a paper called Applying an Ecological Approach to the Practice Design in American Football. For any of you who have been with us throughout this journey into these principles, these ideas of how to reframe an understanding of what's happening on a football field, whether it be for analysis or coaching over the years, as we did our summer seminars where Tyler and Sean have been guests, they have they have done it along with their co-authors. They've been able to put together finally an academic paper that we can point to and just enjoy as an as sort of an opening salvo into a brand new and bright world of understanding the most complex but yet the most exciting game that we are all fans of, which is the game of American football. And I am so pleased to be joined by these two gentlemen. Gentlemen, welcome to the Saturday to Sunday football podcast. Tyler Thank you so much for taking out this time. I know I know your family has a lot going on, and congratulations. I know you had a new addition, so congratulations. Thank you for taking the time out to be with us. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I had a new new boy join the family, Joseph. So as you can imagine, we're thrilled, and I'm equally as thrilled to be on the call here on the podcast. Uh, I've been here before, and I know I had a fantastic time, so I'm expecting today to be uh, exactly the same. And this time, we have a paper, like you said, to point to, which is really the the genesis of us wanting to write the paper, mainly because we wanted to have a paper uh, that was something that the entire community in football can look to as a springboard to continue to explore the ideas, but also something that really can stand as an exemplar in this space. Because as you well know, and a lot of the listeners likely will know, there's a lot of really good literature out there, book form, journal article form. There are a lot of online courses, some that we have here at Emergence. But we needed to have one specifically within American football, because let's face it, it's great to learn from outside of your sport, but it's also really great to learn from within your sport. So I know we're going to dive into that today, um, being long-winded here, but thank you so much for having me. Sean, the same pleasure and extension goes out to you, my friend. As always, just for everybody listening out there, these are two of two of my mentors, people that guide me on a daily basis with regards to football and life. Sean, you've probably sat through more conversations that go beyond football than you care to imagine with me. So welcome to the Saturday to Sunday football podcast, my friend. Yeah, and, and I feel, as I always say with uh, our, our mutual friend, Rob Gray from the Perception Action Podcast, I'm still waiting for my members-only jacket. Uh, I don't know how many times that we've had these conversations, obviously, for your wonderful podcast, uh, which happens to be a resource of mine. I, I go back to those conversations, as I've told you on more than one occasion. Um, I probably re-listen to my own episode more than others uh, listen to it, just to be able to pick and choose off of the conversation that you offer to me because as I've mentioned uh, on air before with you, but those who might be new to hearing you and I speak, my friend, this is a shared mentorship. And part of that shared mentorship is this mutual reciprocal relation that exists between you and your craft, Matt, 
in my and my craft, right? And obviously, we just like to be able to have other people that lock arms with us on that journey. And if it is just only you and I ever listening to these types of things, um, I know that I get as much growth from our conversations as you may get from from the ones that we have as well. So the pleasure is all mine. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just hoping that other people are able to get just a little bit out of it as well. Uh, anytime that you and I, and, and obviously now Tyler as well, go down that rabbit hole, which is the complex movement behavior in sport. And obviously a sport that we all uh, are very passionate and energetic about. And I think that's really the case right there, Sean. I think you really hit on the point. I think there has been some movement in growth. And I think your paper and Tyler's paper and the rest of your authorship that went into this paper, I think this is really the the, the clarion call we've been all waiting for in terms of those of us that are involved in American football that have been kind of discussing and you know going down these rabbit holes, as you said so eloquently, these are now being ideas that are being shared in coaches' rooms. And your paper, the paper that you gentlemen have written, is really the first of its kind in providing any kind of guidance in applying this to our sport. So, Sean, I'm going to kind of just pose this to you. I know Tyler gave kind of the impetus for where this paper came from. And and I kind of wanted to get into the paper tonight for everybody listening and just give you guys a very kind of movie trailer type aspect to it. We want to hit on those main concepts so you can take away some ideas, but in the same respect, <laughs> hopefully leaving you guys wanting plenty more so you can go check out the paper yourself and all the content and emergence. So, Sean, I mean, you know, the the goal of this paper as it kind of opens up seems to be you know, the coach as, you know, kind of centering the coach as a practice designer and looking to help create and co-create the coach's ability to really represent the types of activities and performance problems that they see in the game. Is that correct? I mean, is that really what the paper encapsulates? What is that? What is the paper in and of itself? Yeah, really, really fantastic question, because I think there are are a number of things that we wanted the paper to represent for the group out there. When I say the group, that group is very, very expansive. It could be everyone from a a football coach who's coaching at the grassroots level to one that is coaching maybe higher in the development uh, of those athletes and maybe all the way to the highest of levels, say at the professional level, the NFL, the CFL, the uh, USFL, the XFL, all those respective professional organizations that we have now. Uh, Obviously, we wanted the coaches to be the people that we were speaking to most. But we knew that we wanted to reach and meet other people that are obviously passionate and energetic about our sport of American football as well. The athletes themselves, we wanted to be able to take something from this. And obviously, they are very, very vitally important to us because Tyler and myself are both practitioners and we are both coaches. We are both living and breathing these ideas on a day-to-day basis and we stand to hopefully influence and impact and facilitate that enhanced skill with the athletes. So we wanted to be able to speak to those individuals as well. And then finally, obviously, we wanted to be able to fill in some gaps that exist within an ecological dynamics approach. So if a researcher or a theoretician or a professor were to grab our paper, that there's something that they could probably take from it. So we wanted it to be an exemplar on a number of different levels 
not only showing where we've been with an American football and where we currently are, but from our perspective, where we should go from a contemporary standpoint, like what does many of the things that we've been able to take from the theory and the concepts and the research up to this point in ecological dynamics that doesn't currently exist within American football, because to our knowledge, this is the very, very, very first paper of its kind hopefully one of many to come, but we knew that there was a lot riding on our shoulders, a lot of weight on our shoulders because of that goal, that goal of hitting each one of those respective populations, but also that goal of not necessarily being the torchbearer for say, but when you're the first person through the door, you're probably going to end up being a little bloodied at times, right? Because that door might not have a doorknob to it. We may have to bust down that door, and we had to to a certain degree. Uh, I mean, obviously, kudos to the journal for uh, finally electing to publish it, but there were certainly some hurdles that we had to overcome because of tradition in many ways. And and I won't get too down deep in the weeds with that, but I think the listeners probably can sense a little bit of that tone throughout the first beginning portion of the article as well, to talk about where we've been and what tradition has really meant to American football and how that tradition has sort of created this dogmatic way of thinking at times, particularly when we see practice across those levels of mastery and skill. Everywhere, again, from the grassroots up to the National Football League level, we see practice that is highly coach-centered, it's decontextualized, it's isolated, um, where they're maybe missing the boat on some of the things that we wanted to stand and suggest, not only to get on, not, not to get on some sort of ivory tower, but to speak from our experience. And that's why the case examples, we wanted to stand as exemplars, not only for football, but again, across sports, because we feel as though um, that's why ecological dynamics maybe hasn't gotten the traction that it should have for decades now. That the thing that has stood in the way is the fact that much of the research, even though there's great stuff out there and, and there's some publications in the form of books and courses, much to the point that Tyler mentioned already, some of those case studies, some of those examples are few and far between. And there certainly aren't any within American football, except if, of course, you look at football beyond the stats and some of the things that uh, that I've done there over the years. But that's been very informal, very casual. This is the first of its kind that has been peer-reviewed in this way. I mean, it's so many nuggets there that I want to bring over to Tyler in just a moment. But I think some of the things that I really enjoyed about this paper was it's accessibility. And I think for any coach listening out there, you know, you may not have heard these terms before ecological dynamics, you may not have heard of, you know, nonlinear pedagogy and things that sound a little bit maybe hard initially to wrap your brain around. But just just to provide a little context and gentlemen, please correct me if I'm wrong, as I'm going through this, but big picture, ecological dynamics is just a kind of theory or understanding or framework of how organisms and the environment interact with one another, how how we live and behave in this world. And ecological dynamics is that framework. Within ecological dynamics, there's ways in which learning can be understood. And that's what we refer to as nonlinear pedagogy. It's different learning styles with this type of rationale 
underpinning it. And then, you know, we have two different types of types of frameworks that we adhere to when teaching in this way, which you'll hear throughout this episode, which is a constraints-led approach or the CLA, as well as even differential learning. So is that pretty much right, Tyler? Is that is that the way to encapsulate this for anybody who's listening to this to start out? Yeah, I think so. I think for the most part, that does it justice. I mean, there's there's obviously a lot that you purposely left out, but I think for the most part, what you hit on at the very beginning there, the onset of your comments with ecological dynamics being something that appreciates, respects, and investigates the performer-environment relationship, that's really what it's about, and it's about appreciating the complexity um, of that uh, relationship and the unfolding nature of the relationship, but then to be able to, to position ourselves, if we think from like a coaching perspective, with how are we engaging in the learning process of that individual and their environment? Like how are we situating ourselves in that situation? And you mentioned the constraints-led approach, which is a um, a model uh, that is underpinned by ecological dynamics, and then it borrows a lot of ideas from nonlinear pedagogy, which is built on the framework of ecological dynamics, which is a very learner-centered approach. Approach, which you mentioned. It also appreciates and utilizes constraints um, in that um, approach to learning where we're going to purposely manipulate them as coaches in order to afford opportunities for the individual to interact with their world in a different way. And in this case, in American football problems in a different way. So if we conceptualize the sport of football in particular, obviously every sport in life in general, but the sport of American football in general as a problem-solving activity, well, that means that there are going to be multiple opportunities or affordances in order or uh, that the individual is going to be interacting with in order for them to effectively navigate their situation. So there isn't a one size fits all approach. This is a very learner centered, which means that we're, we're more guiding from the side versus commanding and demanding from the front that there is a one way in which we need to interact and behave. So I think what the listeners should hear out here is this is a coach that is highly involved in the learning process, likely even more sensitive than a coach that is taking a coach-centered approach, which is designing a drill far ahead of time and is going to instruct the athlete to move in one particular way. Not only is that limiting for the learner because they move in the world based on their action capabilities, they perceive invitations for action or these opportunities to act, these affordances based on their action capabilities, but it's also going to remove the coach from the context of them learning because they're they're almost becoming non-sensitive to the specifying information, such as the athlete's behaviors and how they're interacting. So this type of approach, a nonlinear pedagogical approach, um, and certainly ecological dynamics is going to position the coach as a learning designer, a problem setter, which means they need to be actively involved and looking to reset up or rede redesign problems that may nudge the individual to try certain things. And that's really what this about. Uh, this is about perceiving, utilizing, and acting on affordances in the world, which is really a hallmark of skilled behavior. And when I say perceiving and acting on, affordances are opportunities for action. So think of them as ways in which an individual could move. So in the sport of football, it might be a gap that is perceived. Is that gap pass-throughable? There might be multiple gaps on the landscape as the ball carrier is moving to the outside. Which one is inviting 
that individual at a greater strength based on their capabilities to pass through that gap. And one needs to be embedded within that context in order to become sensitive to the bearing angle, the relative velocities, and other specifying information sources in order for them to act in highly adept ways. So I say all of that. I know there's a lot there we can unpack, but what you should hear as a coach is, huh. If I'm telling the athlete exactly where to go each time and exactly how they should get there each time as far as their overall mechanics, I think we may be missing the boat a bit because it's not just merely the action that we're looking at. It's the entangled nature of the perceptions, the intentions, and the actions and the intertwined relationship between that performer and the environment. And I, and I love that you're kind of talking about a really central idea that really kind of smacks you in the face, Sean, in this paper, right? It talks about this idea of a live versus passive movement problems. And to speak directly to the paper itself, I love this little quote at the beginning. It's, it says, rather than trying to automate a technique or specific play, it's our contention that coaches in American football could shift their focus from coach-centric practices which Tyler, you went into in terms of your discussion to facilitating athlete environment interactions, encouraging players to learn how to functionally adapt their movements under constraints representative to those experienced within competition. So Sean, you're, you're, you're trying to describe this idea of a live movement problems for these players to solve as a coach. Where does that, what does that mean to me? Or even as an analyst, what does that mean for me in terms of understanding what I'm witnessing both on the practice field or even on the scouting film? Yeah, love the question. And right now, Tyler's gritting his teeth like, dang it, I wish I had that question. I wish I got that question. So <laughs> Don't worry, Tyler. I got, I got quotes up the wazoo, man. We're going to go down this thing and have some, have some fun with it. Because, again, we want everybody to leave with a feel, a movie trailer for what this is about. And there's certainly more than many concepts left here. Yeah, but, you know, Matt, I, I really love the fact that central to this discussion was this idea of aliveness, right? Stolen or adopted to a certain degree from the late and great movement philosopher and martial artist, obviously an influence of all three of us, Bruce Lee. And really what aliveness does is it takes representative learning or representative task design up a few notches. It really kind of centralizes this exchange between an alive environment that has opportunities that are constantly changing, interacting with and exchanging information with an alive performer who has constantly changing behavioral states of organization. And the two have this mutual reciprocal exchange, as I kind of mentioned earlier, is anyone who is really taking anything off of that, which what Tyler has mentioned or I have mentioned over the first 25 minutes, hopefully what they find there is this idea that an environment has opportunities everywhere that we're attempting to perceive, select, and act upon. But that means our practice design and the practice activities meaning the movement problems that we set there or the skill that we're attempting to facilitate, the movement problem solving that we're attempting to facilitate, has to speak to the player at a bunch of different sensory and perceptual levels, right? That information that is out there to pick up that is going to inform a performer as to how they could coordinate and regulate their movement behaviors has to be present there 
in order for us to expect the most amount, the highest amount of transferability from the practice environment to the performance environment. And I think when Bruce Lee really talked about it, he really spoke to how dead problems were within martial arts that people were doing katas and they were doing forms right so if you've ever been to a karate class or taekwondo you're you're punching against an inanimate object a bag pads whatever it may be a dummy in some cases right but notice everything i said there could be said about american football And Bruce Lee was talking about this in the 60s and the 70s, and that was really what led him to introduce his own personal interpretation of the martial arts, now known as Jeet Kune Do, or well, it was known as Jeet Kune Do at that time as well. But that aliveness was central. He talked frequently about this really like getting attached to, connected to, or in our terms, attuned to one's opponent and one's opponent's behaviors, right? So we start to see many of the ideas that are central to within ecological dynamics or within our paper shining through within Bruce Lee's ideas as well. And that aliveness is really kind of the hub of the wheel, if you will, because with that aliveness, we think about problems that are constantly changing, meaning they're dynamic, We think about problems that change in complexity, meaning that there's numerous interacting component parts, and that there are problems that represent emergent opportunities. They are unfolding in front of us. They have unpredictability, and we must exchange information with that problem in order to adequately and functionally solve it or interact with it. So I think that aliveness if if any if people are going to take anything from this conversation and honestly anything from the paper i hope it's that they must think to themselves how can i make the activities within practice look feel act and behave more like it will in competition and if they ask themselves that question they're going to quickly come to this point of changing complexity. They're going to quickly come to this point of unpredictability. They're going to quickly come to this point of having real, true, living, breathing opponents within the activities that maybe the performer has to be sensitively connected and attuned to in order to couple their movement behaviors in relation to. And, and if they take that from either the paper or this conversation, we're money. Well, I, I think so, too, and, and this is something I wanted to really applaud both of you on with regards to the paper, which is not to conflate everything that you just said, Sean, but I think you guys actively really tried to make this accessible to a very wide audience, and one of the terms that you begin to unpack in this paper, Tyler, is football speak or game speak, and it's a way of, at least to my understanding, why I read it, it gives me kind of a true north, so to speak, as sort of Speed, right? Coach, it gives right? me that North it Star, me North Star, striving, striving, building my players, my players, and that game talk about it so, about it so much as coach, so much as coach. But do we but ever, do we really ever know what we're striving, or striving? But you guys give it, you guys give it some frame using it, using everything that Sean talked about, either dividing or moving problems, framing this development of your games, being Tyler can get kind of take us inside this terminology and how you begin to take something that was very cliche, cliche of the world of sport games, 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 games
You know, before I jump in, I, I want to share this piece here. The, the comments that Sean made at the very end there, specifically speaking to the aliveness, and that's what he's hoping that individuals take from this particular paper. Note that aliveness doesn't simply mean the sheer intensity of a drill, because I think some coaches may argue that, well, you know, our bag drills or our individual periods, they're really, we have great intensity within them. That's fantastic. But does it truly look, feel, and behave like the game where the fidelity of the actions that are emerging from the players are going to be similar to how they are going to act in contextual situations? Because context is everything. And if you truly ask yourself that question and you're honest with yourself, you may see a cut that like, oh, I think that cut actually would pop out in a game. But the way they're behaving is vastly different simply because the information that they're interacting with that is specifying those opportunities, such as the emerging gaps uh, for a ball carrier or uh, arm slots that a quarterback may use because of a defenseman right in their face, that's called specifying information. So when Sean talks about the aliveness of an activity, the vibrant nature, the energetic, lively nature of an activity goes far beyond just the intensity of the drill. Now it has true meaning because it has specifying information. Specifying information is what individuals need to utilize in order to regulate their behavior or actively regulate their behavior in contextual situations. So bags, ladders, all of the things that Sean talked about before, those aren't available for pickup in the actual sport itself, which means that that information is non-relevant or non-specifying for them, and it's not going to be something that's going to guide their actions. So a large number of the drills that are then utilized would really be unusable. Now, they could be tweaked ever so slightly and become more alive, and obviously there's a dial that can be turned there with the aliveness. Now, obviously, I went a little bit on a tangent there, so if you can very quickly repeat your question one last time, the one that you just asked. No, I, I think you really kind of spoke to it to some degree, and I would take it a step further and say to you, you encapsulated kind of this this, this kind of sh what we're striving for, those alive movement problems, and you kind of kept it kind of in the framework of developing a player's game speed, developing a player's football speed. Yeah. and. What that really means as sort of, again, I, I took it as a coach reading this, like that's an excellent takeaway as like kind of like a true north when I'm actually kind of developing my problems for the players. Are they alive and am I really developing game speed here or am I developing my ability to run around cones or through a ladder? Yeah, so speaking specifically to the game speed idea, or in this case, football speed, because this can be for any sport out there, any sport, the whole notion is it captures the complete movement problem-solving process. So when we think about football speed, what does that really mean? Not only does it mean an individual in particular, it's also going to lend itself to particular positions. So you should try to erase from your mind any type of linear sprint that an individual may have. That sprint that they have or that capability for them to move in highly, um, you know, high velocity manners might be part of the game, but it's going to be very, very different because of the information they're interacting with. And so Football speed could be the ability for a tackle to create uh, good splits. It could be the ability for a receiver to have a, a really good release and a great stem and then create good separation. It could be a ball carrier that's able to be very elusive, utilize deceptive movements and create a little bit of separation um, with the 
uh, oncoming tackle in order to break that tackle and then pick up more yardage. And I can keep going, but hopefully you get my point that it's very individual and position specific. So football speed then goes far beyond the physical capacities of an individual, something you may see, like we talked about in the paper, you know, a 40 yard dash at the combine, something like that. That is speed. That is, that's merely the action capability of an individual removed from context. So it still can be very important, but it's going to be even more important when they have to you know, utilize curve linear type motions. They have to drop their center of mass. They have to try to work towards the outside shoulder of an individual to open their hips up to then pull and cut back across them. So football speed then is someone's intentions and how they aim to interact in a particular situation. Their perception, what they're picking up visually, the auditory information they're picking up, and then also obviously the emerging skill there, the action capability. So it's the intertwined nature between perception intention and action and it's the complete movement problem solving process which is what football needs because it's a dynamic sport with an ever-changing landscape of opportunities where an individual needs to be able to be selective and open so skilled intentionality to these opportunities but how do we get there we get there by embedding them in at least small slices of the game so they become sensitive and attuned to the relative velocities, the varying angles, the uh, numerical relations, the space that's available for them to operate successfully. And I think that's exactly where I wanted to take this discussion next because the one thing that I think separates this paper, and as you gentlemen already pointed out at the beginning, is you offer case studies into how these concepts, ideas, and frameworks, how this alive movement problem design process works in conjunction with developing a player's football speed or game speed or understanding of all the interacting informational components that shape their behavior. And Sean, I wanted to kind of hopefully talk, you know, kind of turn it towards you and say, you know, could you take us maybe through uh, one of the first examples, which I know has to do with, I believe you said a defensive end who is, you know, a professional football player and the types of practices and designs that were created for him and how these ideas may apply. Can you just give us a kind of a, a five cent tour or synopsis of what, what a coach can get from that case study, because I think there's a lot there to kind of take away. Yeah, I would say that the first thing that one can take or glean from it, or so I hope, is the need to analyze movement behaviors in context, first and foremost, right? Um, oftentimes, people scoff at this comment that I'm about to make and think that there's no way that they could potentially do it in their environment, or there's no way that I'm doing it in my environment, but it's central to what I do within my environment and me setting the tone from the practices I design or the movement problems I design within the learning environment. And when I say this, um, it really is about the analyst, the, the analysis of the movement behaviors in context to try to determine how the movement problems are being solved right? Because context shapes content. And, and so this comment that I'm about to make, hopefully will rattle some cages out there. Before I start working with any National Football League player, I study every single snap that they've taken in their NFL career from multiple angles at multiple speeds. I'm talking hours upon hours of work before I can ever actually adequately design a practice activity 
or a practice or training setting for that player that stretches their optimal grip over the range of affordances that actually presents problems to that player. Not only that look, feel, act, and behave like they will on an NFL Sunday for that player or more like an NFL Sunday for that player, but also that really stretches that player into their challenge point. That requires them to exist at a place where their gaps exist. So when you look at that case study, it would be case study number one for those who have the paper in their hands for the NFL defensive end. Let's realize and remember, this is already a player, number one, that plays in the NFL. Number two, it's a player that this case study took place back in 2016. He was already a pro bowler once at that point, okay? He wasn't an all pro yet, but he was a pro bowler. And for those who don't understand the distinction, just do a quick Google search, okay? So there's a distinction there between being a pro bowler and being an all pro. And obviously our goal, our aspiration for him was to do whatever was necessary in order to go from that pro bowl type of status to being the upper echelon, number one, number two, elite, truly elite at the position. And so when he and I sat down to really analyze his movement behaviors in context, to try to really determine his rate limiters in ecological dynamics terms, or his weaknesses or gaps within his movement skill set, we realized that in most cases, he was resorting to predominantly two strategies for pursuing and then ultimately attempting to sack the quarterback. And while he was doing that, he was missing key specifying informational sources, particularly in relation to the ball uh, in the center's hand, as well as the quarterback and different uh, information sources that were coming and that were there for the taking, for the pickup, for the detection from the quarterback. So in today's National Football League, the quarterback position, as we know, specifically those listeners at the Saturday to Sunday football podcast will know that the quarterback position is getting more and more and more athletic. The expectation is that quarterback position will continue to get more athletic with the inclusion of guys like a Lamar Jackson, a Kyler Murray, a Jalen Hurts, a Patrick Mahomes, a Josh Allen. You got you get the drill here, right? Uh, oh, shoot. I said I wasn't going to say drill, and I just did. Shit. Anyways, um, <laughs> only we know that joke, but uh, um, I, uh, I I just called or told on myself. Anyways, I digress. Um, the quarterback position has got more and more and more athletic. Well, this player just so happened to have a major issue picking up information in a layered fashion, meaning beyond the tackle or the offensive lineman that was immediately in front of him, the immediate local movement problem. So he was pretty good with being able to pick up the behaviors afforded to him from the behaviors of the left tackle. He plays predominantly on the right side, so he's predominantly a right defensive end. So he was picking up the information about that player but he wasn't picking up information about the ball, where the ball was, who had the ball. Obviously, that's a vital specifying information source, i.e. the quarterback, and how that quarterback is behaving in the pocket and to get outside of the pocket. So he was missing many opportunities to stay attuned, to stay sensitive, to stay connected to the ball and, and what was happening with and around the ball. 
not only that, but because he was more constrained in his movement behaviors, he was resorting mostly to a speed move off the edge or a bull rush move off the edge. He was missing opportunities to the left and to the right of the tackle that he could have been sensitive to if his attention and if his intentions would be educated properly or adequately. Meaning if he was able to perceive and then start selecting and acting upon those affordances, I felt as though more strategies, more abundance would exist within his movement toolbox. And, and I kind of walked people through them, that process of setting up those problems that facilitated that type of abundance, but also that type of attunement and that type of adaptability from his movement behaviors. And lo and behold, kind of fast forward to the end of that mini movie, or that at least that scene within the within that movie, what we found there was that a spin move in a fake spin move started to emerge. We saw like an inside out jab step and as well as an outside in jab step. And we saw various um, hand fighting maneuvers, various hand actions that started to emerge naturally as well, because he was able to be so much more sensitive to this layered information that he could connect to now and actually maybe not get himself sucked in in bull rushing fashions because he was actually looking through and past the tackle into the quarterback and in around the quarterback. So he was actually adapting to the quarterback's actions in the tackle just how happened to be in the way, right? And too often we have practice activities at all those levels of mastery and skill that are one versus one. And we kind of talk about that too. It's left tackle, right defensive end. And it's those two guys interacting with each other. And then you have a fake pseudo quarterback standing back there who's not actually even moving in the pocket. Shit, they might not even have a ball in their hand in some cases. They're standing stationary with no intention to move or throw or do anything about their behaviors. And honestly, the coaches and the the tackle or the defensive end for that matter, aren't even thinking about what the quarterback's doing anyway, which is just completely illogical and irrational. When we think about the sole goal of attaining a sack, notching a sack is to what? Sack the who? The quarterback. So why it is that we're focused so much on that immediate local movement problem when layered in that problem exists a much more specifying informational source is beyond me. And we started to really chase and orient most of our efforts around that. And I think that what you, what you brought to the table in that particular case study that I think coaches are really going to like, and again, to your point, Sean, and you mentioned this concept within the framework of the paper as well, you really begin to look at the details that are the quote unquote, form of life of that player. You look at the film and try to understand the real complexity of the problems that they're facing and then putting them into those representative types of situations, those alive problems where they have the opportunity to explore all the different ways that they can approach it and solve it. And as you said, they develop it along the way. And, and you really, you gentlemen really go into a great detail about some of those considerations that as a coach, sometimes in the beginning of this journey, when I first started, I was very much skill and drill thinking about that idea, that, that very, terrible word. Uh, I was thinking about that all the time because you thought there was an idea of a perfect rep and, and that's just not what we're going for. There is no such thing 
as a repeatable situation. There may be the framework of a situation that repeats itself down and distance and to some degree, maybe position on the field, maybe even an opponent if you play a team more than once in the season. But it's never, ever the same. And to give the players those opportunities to explore is enormous. And Tyler, I think as we get into the paper further, as as Sean in this example, in this kind of small kind of little tidbit that he gave us about what that example encapsulates, all those different really kinds of ideas that we have to consider, you kind of begin to maybe take us through the second example where it's clear that it was a discussion about high school students and developing game speed. And, and one thing that really stood out to me, Tyler, is something that I can't do with drills, as we would call them in practice, that I think ecological dynamics finally gives way to is the idea of understanding your teammates in a way that allows you to perform at a high level. Shared affordances, I believe, is the term that's used often in the literature. But I think you bring that to the forefront in this paper in example two about how game speed is being developed within linebackers. Can you kind of give us a little preview of what that can kind of be for coaches and what they can glean from that? Absolutely. I think that that's a a very important point that you picked up on. And we did mention shared affordances actually earlier in the paper, but the fact that you're gleaning that from this particular case example is fantastic. Now for the listeners, we talk about affordances being opportunities for action. So shared affordances, affordances that are perceived of and for teammates and opponents. So maybe the nuances or the intricacies of what might be available as an opportunity for your teammates and then potentially for the opponents, which is going to give rise to a really skillful mover in context. Now, hopefully you're hearing that that means that the individuals, once again, need to be embedded within that context or at least slices of it to become sensitive to those shared affordances for action. And in the second case example, while it does start out in a 1v1 situation, and then it's um, we, we obviously are pretty direct in the fact that it does expand. And if you look at the second figure there, uh, we give a couple of ways you can actually make the first um, you know, example in that case example, even more complex by having a trailing defender, by having multiple entry points. So now you have an even more complex problem. And one thing I do want to mention before I continue to unpack it, whenever Sean mentioned that 1v1 situations like with a tackle and a defensive end might not be the most representative activity that you can utilize, he's exactly right. But what he um, obviously is saying is that that's not the case across all positions. Like one might find themselves in open space in a 1v1 situation. So what does it go back to? It goes back to what Sean mentioned earlier. You have to analyze the situation because you might find that that might be advantageous for them. But in his situation, what are they? who are they trying to sack? They're trying to sack the quarterback. So it would be fantastic if you actually have a quarterback present in the activity because behavior affords behavior, as we've learned from J.J. Gibson. And so if that's the case, the way that the quarterback is behaving is going to influence, obviously, the way in which the defensive end is behaving. So what we do is we situate we situate the linebackers in a position where they're likely going to be moving at great speeds, and they have to then close on the ball carrier 
orient their bodies to make a tackle, to get in position to firmly two-hand tag off or wrap up. Because one thing that is noted within this particular case example is that we, we're not going into full tackles here. Although I highly encourage one doing so if you're in a position as a position coach to do it, especially as the season comes up, because there's going to be some nuances there as well. But one of the, uh, well, actually a number of individuals within this particular activity shared with us is it felt as much like the game as anything that they had done previously within the game, which was a really good takeaway with the emerging spatial temporal dynamics. So the co-positioning of individuals within a situation uh, that would be representative of the game. So it was initially a 1v1 uh, around the numbers area, and we changed the interpersonal distance between the two of them. It started usually around 10 yards, but we would change it for each individuals depending on what we were noticing with their overall emerging skill. So were they coming in at a, a high lateral pursuit and it was a, affording the ball carrier a, a, multi, a multitude of opportunities, one of which that might be inviting them at great strengths to cut back towards the inside against uh, the flow of traffic because of the angle of pursuit. So it allowed for the defensive player to become more skillful in picking up the nuances of the center of mass, the speed in which the ball carrier was moving. So where we, why we, you know, got here and how we this uh, particular activity came to be wasn't just because we watched a game and we we're like, hey, I think this will work. Although I'll be honest, that probably will be far more beneficial than a lot of the drills that are being utilized. This particular activity was designed because the two linebackers in particular that this case example is serving to explore were individuals that are very good movers. They're now playing at the collegiate level, but they were missing most of their tackles when moving at greater speeds in open space against really skillful movers. And so the nature of utilizing a constraint sled approach, as Sean mentioned, is to identify rate limiters. And then how can we design an activity that will afford them the opportunity to interact with another individual or individuals. Now, one thing that's alluded to within the paper is it wasn't always 1v1. Even within that activity, there were a lot of times it was 2v1, it was 1v2. And so it was either advantageous or disadvantageous for the linebackers and actually placing them in that particular position because we're not always in the most advantageous position. And we did a, we, we manipulated a number of other constraints, but one of the most intriguing pieces about this, and now going back to your shared affordances piece, although it certainly exists in a 1v1 or a 1v2 situation, is I'm a huge proponent of representative co-design. And I'm also a huge proponent of softly assembling activities. Now, before I go down the route on this too much, I'll briefly explain what I mean. Softly assembling is looking at the activities as something that are kind of put together like a starting point and it may only be one two or three activities and then the coach needs to be sensitive to the athlete's behaviors and may change things depending on what they're seeing at that time versus something that's written far in advance that's generalized and really not going to be overly specific for that particular individual so the idea is is that you design an activity to maybe three and you might not even get to the third one. You might change the third one and it might become something very new depending on the skill set um, of the players that day. So softly assembling them. And then from there, we're able to tap into the idea of representative co-design. So what happened was, is 
I was having a conversation with the athletes during a couple brief, you know, timeout, uh, you know, um, TV timeouts that we obviously will replicate because it's going to happen within, within the game for most athletes. And they mentioned the need to be able to reach that ball carrier in open space if it was thrown to them. And so they might even be moving at greater speeds, but they needed to pick up whether they're the mesh point, whether the ball was actually handed off. They needed to be able to, to see through traffic a little bit because they're, uh, they might have offensive linemen and defensive linemen in front of them. And then if it's a quick route, bubble route, hot route, whatever it may be, then the ball is dumped out to them. They would have to hit at a high velocity, come downhill in order to make that tackle. But that emerging decision comes to be because of the information that they're interacting with. So the activity was then expanded to a 5v3 activity in this particular situation where we had a receiver, a cornerback, we have a quarterback, a running back, an offensive tackle, a center, and then a defensive end. And then, of course, the linebacker, where now there's multiple opportunities at the disposal of the cornerback. But then what the linebacker is, and I have air quotes up for everyone that's just listening, obviously, reading or i.e. picking up is going to be highly, highly important for them, whether they're going to crash the box or whether they're going to crash the numbers, find where the ball is going. So what we then found was we had a greater or a larger slice of the game that that was sometimes beyond the athlete's optimal grip over the field of affordances, which basically means that it was beyond their challenge point to a certain extent. But the idea for coaches is that we get close to that challenge point, close to that optimal grip, so athletes can wrestle with and pick up information that will become even more specifying for them. And over the course, and I'll come to a close here, over the course of the offseason, we saw the linebackers making more tackles or being in position to make more tackles in open space, actually at a pretty high level, like a very noticeable level. And then probably even more important than that. I mean, like that was probably the most important because that was they're they're answering us with their actions versus it being some verbalized uh, response. But they also noted that the game just felt slower to them. And it probably should be noted that some of these individuals that were involved in these problems were actually older athletes that were already playing at a, at a higher level. And so these linebackers were making tackles or in position to make tackles, even against more skillful players, which is the whole notion of repetition without repetition and a handful of other things. But that's one of the things that we found. So we then saw that transfer or that learning or that development um, inject itself into the actual competition whenever they were on the field for game day. And that's where we come to at this point in the paper. For those of you listening, I had muted myself, so now I'm back on the air. But for those of us kind of at this point, listening to what you had just said, Tyler, um, I got to say this, gentlemen, as we kind of come to a close, I want to be very respectful of your time. But I want to kind of give us an opportunity to maybe kind of share a couple of kind of parting remarks, both kind of thoughtful considerations, but also maybe some things that you have to be careful of when you're reading a paper like this. Because I know as a coach, when I read this paper, you know, I'm reading kind of the big things I'm seeing in myself is, wow, I got to create more alive movement problems. And I really need to better understand, you know, the specifics, as Sean was pointing out, the form of life that the player's experiencing on the field of play, all those different layers of information that they have to connect to in a given moment. 
Am I doing what Tyler, you described as, am I really going in with a rigid practice practice plan or am I softly kind of designing this practice plan ready to kind of work with the athletes and co-design and co-create where this kind of practice should go in terms of the players I'm working with. And when I come to a close, am I really reflecting on what I'm going to do with the information that was given to me in this practice by my players? Was I watching or was I pushing for a a perfect movement or perfection in certain arenas? And Sean, I want to kind of throw it to you first. I mean, those are some of the ideas that I, I kind of immediately come away with. Are there any other key things you would tell a coach to be both mindful of, but also be aware of, as in, don't misunderstand what we're saying? Is there anything you would say to a coach on the way out? Yeah, and I, and I really love the fact that you summarized from your perspective and point of view what resonated most for you, right? Because I think that which what resonates for each individual reader, just like every individual listener to this podcast, is going to be different person to person to person, right? And that sort of sets the tone or is the precipice for that which what I want to offer for the listeners, which is this idea of authenticity, right? Everyone is going to have different bits of information that resonates for them. This is exactly why Bruce Lee talked about research your own experience, absorb what is useful, discard what is not, and add what is uniquely your own. I think too often when we hear another coach say something, or researcher, or theoretician, or who academic, or athlete, or whomever it may be, we just take those words as the gospel, if you will, or take it at face value. Now, we must remain open-minded. We must have our cup emptied, also, as Bruce Lee stated, so we can fill that up. There, There's room to become filled with new information, or, or maybe new findings, or new perspective. But don't take everything, even the stuff that we say, at face value. Put it through your own filter, but constructively do so. Constructively look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself tough and hard questions. That's actually, ladies and gentlemen, how I got and stumbled upon an ecological dynamics framework. At the end of the 2012 season, I found myself asking really hard questions of myself that I didn't like the answers to. Particularly, are the athletes that I'm working with behaving on field because of me or in spite of me? And or in spite of the activities we were doing or because of the activities we were doing. And I didn't like the answer that I came to when I was adopting this technical model, when I was adopting this perfect practice makes perfect type of way, right? The more traditional dogmatic way of approaching movement skill. And that led me to an ecological dynamics framework and really changed my entire lens. My pay, I had my own personal paradigm shift, if you will, where I found a Robert Frost moment where the two roads were diverged in the trail and I went down the path less traveled. And I'm very grateful and happy that I did. Hence the reason I wanted to give back in the way that hopefully I have throughout football beyond the stats and conversations like this, as well as then work that I am going to hopefully do within my doctorate. And this paper was a piece and a part of all of that. And so I I just wanted to give a little word of encouragement for those listeners out there. 
you might have just heard some concepts and ideas that might have ruffled some feathers in the last 60 minutes, right? That's okay. That's exactly what you need. But allow it to ruffle your feathers. And if you come out the back side of that saying, you know what? I like what I'm doing. and I believe in what I'm doing. And here's why. Then by all means, more power to you. But make sure you have a why. Make sure you can answer those questions. And as you work yourself through the paper or through this conversation, don't be afraid to discard, at least for the time being, that which doesn't speak to you. Okay. And then the, the next thing I will say before I turn the mic over to Tyler, because I've already said plenty here in this answer, but part of that authenticity, I believe, is as a practitioner, as a coach, as a facilitator, finding ways to become more attuned, more intentional, and more adaptable yourself as a practitioner. Because there, just like with an athlete, that's exactly where dexterity exists and lies. Like if we ourselves are interacting with this world that is alive and no one can uh, dispute that we aren't, right? That this whole world is alive. And that's exactly why an ecological dynamics framework studies behavior in the world and not just in sport. So if you think about yourself from a problem-solving paradigm and perspective, you yourself must realize and understand what information you must become attuned to and sensitive to, what that means for your decisions that you make, the activities you design, how you might manipulate constraints, what you might say to an athlete or what you wouldn't say to an athlete, and then ultimately how you would act in attempting to guide and communicate and hopefully facilitate more skillful movement or more skillful behaviors for the athletes that partner with you. Tyler, I, I kind of push it over to you and I just kind of let that wash over me for a moment. Where, what would you say to the coach who's listening to this says, you know, you, you, there's a lot of big words here. It's kind of intimidating. Uh, what, do, what, what would you urge them to do? I mean, as Sean said, I think it's it's well stated. You got to be prepared to look in the mirror. And I think this paper really does that for me. What else would you kind of bring to the table and, and ask coaches, practitioners, uh, performance analysts to consider as they come into this paper? I appreciate the question. And I think it's one that needs to be asked basically at the end of, of really every podcast, everything that's going to discuss something that's relatively new or, you know, a contemporary approach, a few things, and I won't exhaust them because there are, there are a number, but I'll mention a few. Number one, Sean talked about the importance of a learning system. Um, that's what I'm hearing in the back end of that comment. Like the, the coach is involved as a learning designer or a problem setter. So they need to look for ways that they can become more sensitive, more sensitive and attuned themselves as well, because they are part of a learning system them, the athletes, and the tasks that are being solved. So I think that's number one for me is that we're viewing ourselves as that learning designer and something that we need to continually be evolving our skill set as a coach as well. So I won't exhaust that one too much because he did a nice job of unpacking that. The other one being, and we touched on this already, it's actually stated specifically within the paper, the case examples aren't intended to be a book of drills. Now, the reason why we actually on purpose didn't really, really unpacked for thousands of more words outside of word count issues <laughs> that uh, you have with, with journal articles, exactly what we did 
every step of the way. We want these examples to serve as just that, examples, and then coaches do exactly what Sean mentioned, which is look for ways that they can become sensitive and attune themselves so they can start to manipulate constraints. So this is more a platform for coaches to go, ah, okay, that's what it looks like whenever they talk about representative learning design and the live movement problems. I see what they're doing here because of the rate limiters they have identified in person or on film. So I encourage coaches to realize that these examples right here are nothing more than something that could be done, but it needs to be specific to your individual learning environment. That's number two. Number three, let athletes make mistakes. Now I have air quotes up, make mistakes, because really in making mistakes, athletes are becoming more sensitive to specifying information sources most of the time. So I know that really makes coaches like, you know, a little squeamish, mainly because they, well, they can't make mistakes because we need everything to look perfect. Well, I don't see the value in something looking perfect whenever you have either no opposition or limited or rehearsed opposition when you're rehearsing certain patterns and then being just confused as all get out on game day whenever everything doesn't unfold as you expected it to. Because quite frankly, and I've been involved at several different levels um, in both coaching as a position coach and as a strength and conditioning coach, and most of what the athletes are doing in practices are just being rehearsing and being told exactly what they need to do. And then maybe in some of the team, the whistle isn't blown too quickly because someone missed a tackle or a block was missed or something like that. So athletes need to be afforded the time to do so. So even as coaches, if you're hearing, well, I just, I can't do this in these particular portions, at least try to inject more aliveness into your indie periods, certainly in your warmups. And then maybe even in some of your half line and skelly periods, so I think that would be the third and then final thing here. And this is really touching on specifically the latter part of your question right there with the language. Anything that's worth knowing is going to have its own language. I think all coaches out there can really look themselves in the mirror and go, well, you know, it took me X amount of years at the point where I learned the proper techniques to be said coach or whatever it may be. It's going to take a little bit of time. So sit with it. Let it marinate a little bit. Let it wash over you some. Explore yourself ways that you can manipulate constraints and realize that in doing so, and going back to one thing Sean mentioned, you're, you're allowing for authentic and creative movements to emerge because athletes perceive the world based on their action capabilities. So those would really be my big four take-homes. Um, the paper, as we mentioned at the onset of this, is really serving as that that paper, literally that paper, the paper that can be pointed to as the example, the exemplar. And then we're hoping that coaches take it and run with it and utilize it in their own unique way. And and to just share a little bit of something as we close out, I mean, and I think, Tyler, you, you kind of alluded to it when you said a system. Listen, there are coaches out there that may be fundamentally doing this right now, a lot of it. But without that framework, without that rigor, without that understanding of how it is you're being so successful, you're bound to limit your own growth and potential as a coach. This gives you the opportunity to look deeper from the state championship quarterback or coach to the state championship or national championship coach to NFL coaches to analysts. You might be doing a lot of this already, but you're doing it serendipitously because of your intuition about what the game is. But imagine now if you have a framework to give language to what you're looking for. And that's what I think this paper does in spades. It really puts the American football community on notice that those of us who feel there's more 
to the game, there is. And I think, gentlemen, absolutely applaud you on a success because I left with so many things and I felt so good about looking at my practices for youth football this upcoming year and even the analysis that I want to do for upcoming college players. And I'm like, man, there's so many things that I can be looking more carefully at. Where are they relative to the sideline? How fast are they moving? How many players were over there on the field? Like, did that change the behavior of the player? So many things I can go on and on. But alas, we are at the hour mark, and I want to be respectful of everybody's time, both listeners and yourselves, and say thank you so much for joining me this evening and joining us here at the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. Again, I'll be linking this particular paper, the Applying an Ecological Approach to Practice Design in American Football. This will be linked in our show notes so everybody can find it. And I know, Sean, I'm going to let you kind of talk about this on the way out. Emergence is something that I have been so grateful to be a part of in terms of learning from each of you in the outstanding courses that you're putting on. Does Emergence give us a deeper opportunity to understand here? Can we find more about this if we're compelled at Emergence and everything that you guys are doing over at Emergent Movement? Yeah, and, and we hope so, right? That's what uh, that's what our vision and mission was created around, uh, and, and that was really the impotence of uh, emergence and its creation and its origin, right? To create more of a learning environment, to create a learning community, a group of people which shared in common goals that wanted to lock arms and interact in these ways to be able to grow and understand movement behavior at a much deeper level. And obviously, yes, we put ecological dynamics at the forefront of many of our discussions, but it isn't so much about ecological dynamics. It's about our passion and our energy to understand more about the movement behavior which emerges in sport and to really get closer to the truth so we can assist athletes in becoming their best self, that we can chase this self-actualization of them themselves behaving in the world in the sporting community that we are so passionate about and that sporting environment in that niche that form of life that is oriented around american football that links and binds each one of us but at emergence it isn't just about american football it's about all sports and it's about understanding behavior at a much deeper level and we have a bunch of different entry points depending on how committed or how uh, let's just say new the ideas are to people. What our aim is, is to meet all parties where they are. So we pride ourselves in having a number of different entry points where people can come into and interact with everything from our free blog series that they'll find, obviously, if they go to our website at Emergence, or if they want to get involved with something like a movement meetup call or even one of our mini courses, which are very, very, very uh, inexpensive ways of sort of dabbling into some of these ideas and finding things that apply within their own world. And then all the way to things like uh, our bigger ticket items, which are things that really take the deep dive. Things like underpinnings, which obviously uh, you know all too well about, as well as in our Movement Academy um, offerings, which is really the gold standard, at least for us, because it allows us to come into the coach's world, to come into the practitioner's world, and to be able to grow alongside of one another, to be able to put these ideas to use and to see really 
where one's gaps are and what we can do to fill them, not only within that respective individual, but within the field as a whole. So obviously we, we very, very much uh, appreciate the time, energy, and effort that you've put forth, Matt, not only to having us on this type of platform and medium, but obviously in the support of emergence and everything that we've done with it over the years. Well, it's my pleasure as I pivot over to Tyler, to everybody out there. I've spent my own money on everything that they're mentioning, not by not by will of anything else except willing to get better because of the way these gentlemen go about their job of helping support coaches. I can attest to that personally, and I welcome any questions that you may have. I have grown tremendously as a person, as a human being and coach through things like the Movement Academy, as well as the... Um, other courses that I've worked alongside them with, and it's been tremendous. Tyler, where can we find more information if we want to contact you, Sean, Emergence? How can we get reach out to you guys? First, thank you so much for having us. It's been a true pleasure, a lot of fun. Uh, Emergent, E-M-E-R-G-E-N-T, M-V-M-T. So Emergent Movement, the company is Emergence, but there was actually a TV show, I think, coming out on NBC or something the same time that we were starting, so that was taken. But the company is Emergence, but it is EmergentMVMT.com. Uh, same thing as far as all the handles on Twitter and Instagram. We post a lot of content on our social media as well, and then we actually have a uh, Memorial Day special coming up, so our entire store will be 20% off. So highly encourage people to dive in there, but thank you so much for having us. A lot of fun. And I want to thank you, everybody out there, for joining us on this really deep dive into something that I hope is is going to take you beyond your comfort zone into a world of discomfort, but also excitement as you begin to kind of look at yourself as a coach, as an analyst, and explore where your understanding of this game can kind of take you. Because I know I'm learning. I know every gentleman on this call can attest to the fact that they're still learning We all don't have it figured out, but we're eager and passionate about learning, as Sean said, the truth. The truth about what is it that makes players great? What is it that makes us who we are in this world? And how can we take that and help our players develop to be their absolute best? So on behalf of myself, Sean, and Tyler, and everybody else at the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And again, with the spring football coming up and next year, wishing everybody good luck. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.